Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Maddie, I was at a bar the other night, and a lady came up to me, as they always do. And she said to me, hey, how are you? And I went, yeah, good. How are you? She went, I'm well. She said, uh, "Oh no!" She said, um, "You seem uh, you seem interested in me." And I said, "Oh, I don't know why you'd say that." She said, "Well, you just you just do." And I go, "Okay." She goes, "But before this can progress, I need to tell you something." I said, "Okay, what?" She said, "I've got a fake eye." I said, "A fake eye?" She said, "Yes." She goes, "The fake eye. It's it's made out of cedar. You know the tree?" I said, "Really?" She goes, "Yes." She goes, "So would you like to dance?" I said, "Why wouldn't I?" Tell you, Michael, your jokes are getting cornier and cornier. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome everybody, another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. We are obviously talking about the eye and we are talking about vision. How do we get this party started? We need to talk about the well, basics like of the eye. Pub to start with. Well, I think we need to start talking about the eye. We need to get into it. We need to talk about the eye, what the eye is, what the eye does. Maybe use some nice analogies and then talk about the process of vision. Okay, so this is special sensors. This yes. is part of the nervous system. Now, are we on a path now for the special sensors? Yeah, this? maybe. I don't think we should pigeonhole ourselves because um, uh, we may not get to all the sensors, at least in a row. But okay. I think today's vision, maybe next one we'll be hearing, I think. Okay. All right, so talking of pigeons, do they have eyes? Pigeons? <laughs> well, I think, I think they do. I'm just trying to get a good segue. <laughs> Uh, so why not, pigeons? Not a good segue at all. All right, so um, 
Should we just jump straight into the eye or should we just talk a bit about the light and the, um, the wavelength and so forth? Well, I think we should first say, why do we have eyes? Why does any organism have eyes? Well, not all organisms have eyes. Well, why does, like <laughs> my original question, why would any organism have eyes? Okay, I think it would be as a photosynthesis no. mechanism. No, not photosynthesis mechanism. No, that was a test. Yeah. And you passed. Okay, more like photoreceptive. Photoreceptive, yeah. yeah. So it's essentially to pick up um, different wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum. And What's um, that? I'm going to so test you today. So this is essentially the wavelength that comes from the sun. Mm-hmm. I guess it could come from other objects, but the best we know, it comes from the sun, right? In the universe or in our solar system. Yeah, energy that's coming from our sun. And it projects this uh, huge wavelength of light and that wavelength of light in different uh, areas along the along the um, spectrum can be beneficial or non-beneficial um, to life, biological life. Sure. And so this um, this wavelength can induce molecular atom changes, which can be a method of um, generating electric, uh, uh, generating energy. And so when we look at, say, plants, they would absorb light at you know, approximately 300 to 800 nanometers, mm-hmm. um, which is probably, what, blue to red? 300 to 800? Slightly outside. Yeah, for infrared, infrared, uh, sorry, ultraviolet up to infrared. Okay. So it's potentially absorbing that level of spectrum, mm-hmm. and then what it can do with it is, um, through photosynthesis, um, generate its own energy. Mm-hmm. That's plants. Okay. With some other substrates. Yeah. So Obviously carbon dioxide and so forth, and water. So they have proteins and carotenoids, which is a type of what, like a derived vitamin. I'm not sure exactly what the correct terminology would be. Um, but essentially this molecule can absorb it and then make energy from it. Mm-hmm. Now, so w- when we move more into the animal kingdom, then we don't necessarily make energy through photosynthesis. We have to do other things. But some lower, org- lower order organisms um, can still do photosynthesis and therefore it would need to know when there's light available to do this. And so probably the most primitive form of eye is to notify that organism that there is light that could be beneficial for its survival to mm-hmm. make energy from, and it would either move towards it or move away from it. And so I would say this is the most basic level of eye, which would be probably just a, a eye spot, such as would be on a, on a worm. Just an area of, you know, like a, a photoreceptive area. Yeah, exactly. Which area. We c- let's, for argument's sake, just call it a retina. Okay. Okay? Sorry, I'm drinking. No, that's fine. Hence the pause. Um, so, these animals would want to know when there's this potential um, energy to make um, its life continue. And so, we want to move towards it. So, some organisms would have its little light spot, its eye spot, which as you said is just a flat bit of um, retina and it could be associated with a a flagella which is like a tail and so when that light spot gets turned on, almost like a solar panel and it would then generate a bit of power to move that um, flagella which would move it to let's say the top of the pond, top of the lake 
which would then pick up the, s the sun, make its photosynthetic energy and could keep surviving. Does that make sense? So that's kind of the starting point of a basic eye. Mm -hmm. And as life becomes more progressively complex, let's say, we move from a very simple one cellular into multicellular, from invertebrates into vertebrates, we generally the eye becomes more complicated. Yep. So where do you want to continue from here? Well, I think we should... Do you want to go to the next level of complexity yeah, of the I eye? Or yeah, do you want to just jump straight into the vertebrate eye? No, I think we should... If we go to the next level of complexity, um, would it, what, what, would, what could you say about that? All right, so if you've just got, a, if you've just got an eye spot, it's so it's just a flat um, receptive area for light, yeah? Then it doesn't really give you much information in terms of where the light's coming from or the direction of the light. So generally the next step of um, complexity is the that layer of retinal cells or the photoreceptive cells start to bunch up into a cup. So that's basically the <laughs> best way I can yeah, no, describe that's it. Perfect. It's like a cup. Yeah. And so when the light shines on it, that cup knows what um, direction it's coming where it's from. Coming from. So some part of the cup is still in dark yep. and some part is now lit up. So this is starting to move into the realm of our eye, right? Well, it's very, it's still very basic. So, you know, certain simple worms would have this method. And so it would just know that light is in a certain direction and it would either move or toward or away from it. But our retina is shaped like a cup. It is. Yeah. So I think there's probably exceptions, but I think the vast majority of eyes now do have the retina in a cup-shaped fashion. Okay. Yeah. And do you think it's for that reason to determine where the light's coming from? I'm not, I'm not an expert in this area, but from the best of my knowledge, yeah, it's for directional benefit. Okay. So to know a better, a, a great, a great more deal depth of knowledge on the light source and where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. So whether you need to go towards it or go away from it, because now you have that understanding of where it's coming from. So then probably the next step would be um, pinhole camera. Okay. So let's just say, um, you know, like SLR cameras, the, the, the cameras that have, um, I guess the SLR stands for self-loading, what's the R? Um, self-loading something. I thought it was a lens. Self-lens, anyway. I thought it was self-loading, anyway. It's basically a camera <laughs> that you can interchange the lenses on. Mm -hmm. You know the ones I'm talking about? Isn't a single lens reflex camera? Single lens, yeah, I don't know where, but anyway. <laughs> Self-loading. Yeah. You're th thinking about guns. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to the camera. If you, if you get the SLR camera, okay, point it at you or at something, take the lens off and then look through the, well, in the old days it was look through the eyepiece, but now you can look at the LCD screen at the back you look at it with, with the lens off, all you could get discerned from it is what's light and what's dark. So if you kind of ran your hand in front of the lens or the, the hole in the camera now, you would see your hand go over just by getting a bit darker and then lighter again. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. But then if you got the, a lens cap and put it over the top of it and put a pinhole on it, you're then only getting light from the room from a very small section of the room okay so only a bit of light is streaming into that back cup of the retina mm -hmm. on the back of the camera okay and it's and it's going to give you a lot more precise area of the room 
Okay, so it's going to really focus light in one distinct area on that. Um, so how's that different to the pinhole camera? This is the pinhole camera. This is what I'm saying now. So this is this is the pinhole. So you put the lens cap on, but you put a little hole in it. So only now a little bit of light can get to the back of the camera, opposed to before it was just completely open, which was like just that cup. Okay. Okay. So it's now giving you a much more distinct uh, uh, region of uh, region of the room, let's say, on one part of the photoreceptive part of the camera or in the organism part of the retina. So certain things like the Nautilus is like this invertebrate in the ocean. It has a pinhole camera. It works okay, but it needs a lot of light to be able to... So does that mean it only sees a very small part of the environment? Well, we, we will have a very... Um, because we, ha we have a lens that focuses a narrow beam into it, so we kind of will have a small narrow area as well. But potentially, yes. But it needs a lot of light to be able to discern images. So it needs to... That's the limitation of a pinhole camera, is it needs a lot of light to be able to pick up um, vision. Okay? So to overcome this, what we've developed, or what the further complex organisms have developed, is p to put, instead of the pinhole, you put a lens there. So it's kind of like a developed piece of tissue that refracts light. Okay. So what is it, like glass? Yeah, like glass. Well, it's not really like glass, but <laughs> use that as an analogy. It's kind of like this convexed... I think if we talk about organisms, it's a crystalline structure which usually is convex on either side. So if, if you, you could think about a, um, when somebody puts in a... Contact lens? Contact lens, how it's convex on one side and concave on another, so it, it basically has the curve of the eyeball. Think of it being convex on both sides, so bumped out on both sides. That's a lens, right? Yeah. Okay. And so what's the importance of having a lens? Well, what it's going to do now, which is above the pinhole, because remember the pinhole's advance on just the open cup is it's now focusing the beam in one area. Instead of just a big area of the retina now being lit up, it's now really focusing it on. And so what the, um, what the lens will do is further focus it into one area, okay, but put, uh, I guess, a degree of mag magnification resolution into it. Now, we haven't defined what the retina is at all. Oh, we just said the retina was basically the area of photoreception. And so you could have that as just the flat eye spot all the way up to a cup, the cup with a pinhole, now a cup with a lens. But where's the, where's the pinhole in regards to the cup is the question. Oh, okay, so sorry. people may think that yeah, the, the cup has the pinhole in it, but it doesn't. Yeah, good point. So basically, um, hmm, it's hard to explain. The cup, uh, <laughs> how are you going to describe this? Um, imagine, like, with your hand, you form a C-shape your, between your thumb and your index finger, okay? Where your skin is, that essentially where is the retina. And so in this particular arrangement of you forming a C, the light is coming into it through that big opening of C. But if you bring your fingers and thumb closer and closer to closer together, just before it's touched, that's essentially the pinhole. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. What about if we were to say that if you were to get a tennis ball and you were to take a tennis ball and a knife and you were to just cut maybe a fifth of the edge of the tennis ball off, right? Or even a quarter of the tennis ball, you're going to be left with what looks like an open cup of a tennis ball, right? With the majority of it folded over, but mm. there will be a hole. Mm. 
that's the open cup. Yeah. And the retina would be a layer of cells that lines the inside, all around the inside of that cup. But if you were to get a, a whole tennis ball again, again, thinking that the retina or the cells, the photoreceptive cells lining, are there lining the inside and would just to get a pair of scissors and just drill a little hole or just get a drill and drill a hole into that tennis ball. Mm. That's like a pinhole right. camera. Yeah, that's right. So small, small area, small aperture for light to go through. Yeah, and so the benefit of that in terms of a bigger hole is it would um, let less light in but the light that it does let, let in is much more directional. So it's going to focus... A bigger hole or compared to a bigger hole, you say? Yeah, yeah. Yep. And it's going to be a greater resolution. Mm-hmm. But a drawback from that is you need a lot more light to be able to pick up your environment. And so the next level of comple- complexity is instead of that pinhole or that hole that you just drilled into it, you're basically making the hole a bit larger and putting that l- a lens into it. Mm-hmm. And so what that will do then is the light will have to go through the lens, refract, and then it will then be projected onto the back, which is the retina. Now, refraction is simply when light bends when it goes through a medium. Right. That's what refraction is, yep. when, when we say refraction. So when you have a convex lens, again, just picture uh, uh, a... Front of a contact lens. Contact lens. Mm. Front of a contact lens, that's convex. Convex is bumped outwards, concave is bumped inwards. If it's convex on both sides, what you're going to find is when light comes in, it will focus light into a particular point. So light that comes in from the top will be focused downwards. Light that comes in from the bottom will be focused upwards. Light that comes in through the middle will stay on in its straight path. Right. But what that basically means is, is that if an image is coming in, remember light's coming in into a lens, the lens is going to flip it. The lens is going to flip that image. It's going to make it upside down and reverse it. And so that means that the light of the image is going to be projected on the retina in an upside down reverse fashion. So the retina picks up that image in an upside down reverse fashion. Okay. So if you were were standing in front of me and you would be, what would you appear in my retina that your head would be on the floor? Head would be on the floor and my left arm would be where my right arm is. Oh, wow. Yeah. And what your brain does is the retina is a t- is basically part of the nervous system. Yeah, uh, it's pretty much the only part of the body that p- only part of the nervous system that you can view with a, a light and a magnifying, magnifying glass. Right. Uh, so you can literally see into someone's brain. You can see into somebody's brain if you look through their pupils. Right. It's part of the nervous system, and therefore it projects to the brain, where you can be consciously aware of an image. Your brain flips that image back only because it's used to doing that, okay? You can give people glasses that make their world, again, upside down and reversed. You can give them glasses. And if you get these people to wear these glasses over a couple of days, it tricks the brain again. And when you take those glasses off, you'll see the whole world upside down and reversed. Wow. And it takes the brain another 24 to 48 hours to remedy that. Is that right? So yeah. It will adapt. Yeah, that's that how good quickly. it is at adapting. Couple of days, wow. couple of days. So yeah. this obviously, this is an experiment. Because what will happen is, yeah, yeah, they do experiments. If you put these glasses on, for the first couple of days, everything will be upside down and reversed. Your brain will flip it back. Wearing, takes, you'll wear those glasses. Hours to do your, so. Yeah, and your brain do will you have flip to it like back. consciously work hard to do that? Or I don't know. I don't think so. 
your brain will just do it because it's a subconscious thing. That's fascinating. And so then when you take those glasses off and you're seeing again normally, you're not. Mm. You're seeing up. You're actually seeing an upside down reverse image simply because the brain's doing it. Isn't that phenomenal? It's crazy. Right. So we at, th- at this point in time, we've got a a um, a light. Sorry, a um, an eyeball with just a fairly fixed, simple lens. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's say the garden snail will have this. You know, you see the snail walking with this shell on its back and these two little projections come on the front of its head. Yeah. They've got is just a projection with a lens sitting in it. And on the back of it is the retina, like you explained, and then that's just going to its um, nervous system. Uh-huh. But the snail can't really focus on things, so it's probably got a focal... Like me. It's got ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> so it can focus on a certain um, focal distance. And it can't really do much more with that. Yeah. Okay. So that's another limitation here. So then we move into probably we could say the vertebrate eye. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the vertebrate eye is starting to get a, a bit more complexity to it. And what it allows it to do is um, some, say, fish, sharks, cartilage fishes have the ability to move the lens forward and back, just like a camera can zoom the lens out and zoom the lens in. You, you know, those cameras where you see that? Yeah. Automatic. Digital cameras, yeah. Okay. They um, they have the ability to go zoom out, zoom in. And so similar in these fish or sharks, they have the ability to um, wobble the lens forward and back, which allow it to focus like further away or closer. Mm-hmm. Kind of okay so far? So far. And then we move to the, the, the vertebrate lens more so. Again, there's probably exceptions where our ability to focus is about changing the shape of the lens not moving the lens and so we just cause the lens to bulge or flatten and so we either make it flatter which is for long distance or bulge so it's come closer to a a round spheroid um, to look close yes because that's because the more convex a lens is the more narrowly it will focus that light source Right, so it's easier to it's if you want to focus on something, it will fatten. If you want to, yep. if you want to see, just uh, from a distance, generally, you're not going to be seeing very very sharp images, but you'll be seeing a distance. Yep. It's going to be flattened. Yeah, and so and this is called or this partly is called the accommodation accommodation reflex. Mm-hmm. And so if you got a person to look far away, and then you got them to look at a piece of paper in front of them, they would accommodate to read the paper but their lens so their pupil would um, dilate okay. yes Get so there. now that's 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 two different things as well right the fact that the pupil yeah. dilating and the lens accommodating is actually two different things yep so so can I just make one final point and then because mm-hmm. I think this is just finishes the vertebrate eye off I think then because we've compared it with a camera uh, we might as well just say we might as well just compare all the different parts of the eye and how it's very similar to hum- the c- Human eye. Human eye. All right. So first of all, both the human eye and the camera has a lens. The lens is all about um, refracting and focusing. Okay. Both the camera and the, the eye has a photosensitive pigment. Now, back in the day, the photosensitive pigment in a camera was the... F- the film that you used to wind into the back of it, and that would be the photosensitive t- 
tape or whatever you want to call it. Um, sometimes it would be uh, chromatic, sometimes it would be slide film, okay, depending on the type of um, lens, the type of film that you'd use. Okay, then you need an aperture to let the light in, and this is done in the eye, the, the iris, which is the coloured part, and then that would be just the aperture diaphragm in the camera. So that's the kind of shutter curtain that closes over and allows a certain amount of light in. But the back of the camera, if you've ever opened the camera up, it's very dark inside. It's it's all blackened out, and that's to stop light bouncing around and reflecting everywhere. Same as our eye. So once you get past the pupil, um, the whole back is darkened and it's to absorb any light once it's come in and stop it bouncing around like a hall of mirrors. You don't want that because yep. that's going to change your light. Then you need the lens covers. So you need to put a cover on the lens like a camera. Yeah. But ours is our eyelids. Okay. And so that's kind of a protective mechanism. And I guess you just have... In, in in our eye, we have these protective fluids that will bathe the, the front of the eye to stop it being irritated and drying out. Perfect. So there's probably more, but I think that's the main ones. What yeah, do you think? That's good. Oh, I think that's good. So is there any more anatomy that you want me to talk about, or do you want to take over now with a bit more physiology? Well, I could talk. How about I talk a little bit more about the anatomy? Okay. So I think if we take the human eye, pull it out of the head, have it sitting on the table, size of a squash ball-ish, right? right? A couple of things you're going to see when you have a look at the gross anatomy of it. First thing is you're going to find a large, basically there's three major layers of the eyeball. The outer layer, the middle layer, and the inner layer. So let's start with the outer layer. What do you see on the outside of the eye? First thing you see is the majority of the eye, around about 93% of it, is, that right? that is white mass. And that's sclera. That's the white stuff that you see with some blood vessels dispersed throughout. Okay. The sclera, the white part of the eye, is there for protection. Yep. Right? Because a lot of collagenous tissue in there. And also, there's a, Matt's got a lot of sclera. It's also there to keep the, uh, maintain the rigidity yeah. of the eye. And that's the other aspect I forgot about the camera. You don't want the camera um, being made out of jelly because it will wobble around. And, and I can't see how a jelly camera could take any good photos. No, that's right, because it distorts <laughs> the image. And just like your eye, your sclera gives rigidity to the eyeball. Yes. Sorry, go on. So it's, uh, the sclera is nice and smooth and allows for the eye to be able to move around in that socket as well. That's the sclera. It makes up 93% of, of the outside of the eye. The other 7% of the outside of the eye is the cornea. Now, the cornea is the most anterior portion of the eyeball yep. and it juts out a little bit. It sort of protrudes anteriorly. And what the cornea does... Con convex. It's a convex protrusion on the anterior part of the eye and it does a couple of things one it allows light to transmit through mm. two it also allows light to refract through and three again it plays a protective role okay okay so mainly so you like the skin epithelia the outside layer of both sclera and the cornea is epithelia and so this is important because the outer layer of the eyeball being the sclera and cornea is there for protection that's okay. the main point then we move to the but the main difference between the sclera, which is much more about rigidity, mm. the cornea... Um, oh, yeah. Big difference is that the sclera is opaque yeah, um, and the, uh, the cornea, cornea is transparent. Transparent. So it allows light through. Yes. But Only both, one spot. But they're both protected. But also you said that there, there is refraction in the cornea. That's right. Okay. So sclera doesn't let light get through. 
cornea does. That's important because we want light to come only from a particular direction. Good. All right. All right. And also, can I just say one thing on the cor- on the cornea? Mm-hmm. Um, Michael put a picture up on uh, Twitter. Yeah. Of some animal. What was that thing? Animal, hey. It had humongous oh, eyes. yeah. That was a that was a um. Uh, what are they bloody called? The the the. Anyway, it's like a Madagascan. Lima. It's a lima. Okay. So, it was this animal that had humongous eyeballs. Yes. Um, so, usually usually what happens in the animal kingdom, if an animal is nocturnal, or is it's, it resides in very dark location, its eyes, um, it almost pops, protrudes out of its head much more, and it has humongous corneas. And that is to really suck the light in from all dimensions. and Maximise the amount of light. Yeah, and refract it all in. Yeah. So that's, when you said the refraction, it's really important that that is a, a very big role because it probably does more um, refracting than the lens almost. Yeah. So in terms of the majority of refraction, it's probably the cornea does most. Bending the light more yeah, than the but lens. but just the lens can be manipulated. True. Sorry. Go that's right. That's a good point. The... Middle part of the eye, so that was the outer, middle part of the eye is predominantly a vascular part of the eye. So it's there to supply blood, oxygen, nutrients. So it's there for nutritive purposes. And there's three parts of this middle nutritive layer. First part, and again, it's hard without visuals, but if you're picturing the eye as a tennis ball, right? The first... I thought it was a squash ball. Yeah, whatever. Squash ball. Picture squash ball. That the outer layer is the very outside. Makes sense. The middle layer now is between the outer layer and the inner layer, unsurprisingly. This, these are blood vessels and blood vessel-like structures. Three of them, first of which is called a choroid, and the choroid are basically blood vessels. So what is this inner, inner layer called, collectively? The, the, uveal, or the uvea tract. Uvea, okay. Yeah, the uvea. So the uvea U-V-E-A. is made up of... UVEA. made up of these three things. One, the choroid, choroid, which is a bunch of capillaries, basically. Sinusoidal capillaries. Right. And these make up the majority of the back of the tennis ball or the eye, okay? So the... the choroid? I would say the choroid okay. t- makes up probably uh, two-thirds of the posterior... M- part of the eye right then as it starts to move anteriorly right where where it starts to come back together it starts to thicken and triangulate and turn into something called ciliary bodies right then these ciliary bodies are attached to two other projections called the iris okay okay and this is all one body this is all one body and the iris and the iris sorry siri's talking to me for some reason and the iris is going to be sitting immediately behind the cornea. Okay. So that's why when I look into your eyes right now, in a very non-seductive way, I can see the color of your eyes, which is the iris, because I'm looking through your cornea to see your iris. Now, the iris is a continuation of the ciliary bodies, which is sitting just outside of the colored part of the eyes, and then the choroid, which basically runs along the back, the, the, you know, the, just behind the sclera all the way around. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Delivering nutrients. So then when you're in the iris, what's causing the color change between people? So a couple of different things. So my eyes are blue. 
So your eyes are blue, mine are brown. Why is your eyes blue? Why are my eyes brown? That's a great question. Basically, your iris has a couple of different types of pigment within it, embedded within it, melanin-based. So melanin is is what gives us our darker skin color, Mm -hmm. okay? So there's two types. Which I like. Eumelanin, yes, very true. (laughs) There's eumelanin, which gives you the black pigment. You calling me melanin? Eumelanin, Matthew, eumelanin. Uh, and I think the other one is pheomelanin. I think the other one's pheomelanin. And that's a redder pigment, a reddish pigment. Okay. And basically, the color of your eyes is a ratio between the eumelanin and the pheomelanin. And an absence of these pigments gives you the hazel to blue eye color. What so about then, um, uh, like albinos, there's is pink. Yeah, so albinism... So albinos, what you'll find is that they have a lack of melanin. Mm. They just have a total lack of melanin. So blue eyes, you still have the eumelanin, pheomelanin, but in very low quantities. In albinism, those those who are albino, they have zero melanin. Now, this is actually important because what we haven't spoken about yet is part of the retina, which is the next layer, the internal layer, the inner layer, or inner coat, has a pigmented layer filled with melanin. Which makes, which is why when you look in your pupils, it's black, right? Yeah. Which I spoke about the darkened area. That's right. But those who are albino don't have melanin lining the back of their retina, which may, and we have that melanin there, like you said, to absorb any excess light, so it's not scattered throughout the eyeball, reducing the quality of our image. But those with albinism, it's not there to absorb the light, so the light does refract all, th- or, um, bounce around all, all within the eyeball, and they end up having very, very, very poor vision. That's another reason why when you look into the pupil, it may seem a bit pinkish. Wow. Yeah. There you go. And that, does that go with rabbits as well? Because they have pink eyes, don't they? I think that's more so they have an active, reflective... No, no, but I think, you know, those white rabbits, they have pink... White rabbits, nah. Anyway, that's good. Um, so we've done the ciliary body, so that's an extension of the choroid, and then we go all the way to the iris. Now, the iris, are we going to talk function here or are you going to move to the inner layer just very brief function of the iris as a as an aperture so basically it's got circular and radiating muscle fibers and that's essentially going to change the way that that iris opens and closes okay so you can constrict the iris which is going to pull the um well actually no say constrict the the pupil it's going to cause the iris come closer together and if you want to dilate the pupil, which makes the pupil bigger, bigger hole, it's going to pull the um, the iris towards the sides like a curtain. So it's going to bunch up out into the periphery, right? Yep. And that's going to allow more light to go into the lens, which is then going to allow more light to go into the retina. Um, is there anything more about the choroid? Oh, the, uh, I no, know the that was the middle layer. I know the choroid body also produces uh, aqueous humor, which is that... True. But I haven't got to that yet. Okay. So let's talk about the inner layer. So the inner layer is basically the retina. Okay? So the so this is the photosensitive region of the eye. Yes. Yeah, so I said the outer layer is for protection. The middle layer is for nutrition. And the inner layer is a sensory layer. This is the photoreceptive layer. Now the retina is made up of photoreceptive portions and non-photoreceptive portions. Okay? Two major layers. There's actually 10 layers. To the retina, but we're not going to talk about those ten. ten layers. There's ten layers. Yes. Wow. But let's just talk about two 
ways of categorizing those layers. One, the most, the outermost layer of the retina, so the one closest to the choroid, right, oh, okay, right. is a pigmented layer of epithelium. So is that also the melanin layer that you spoke about? That's right. Area? It's pigmented retinal epithelium. And this contains all these melanosomes, which are granules that uh, hold melanin, and they absorb any excess light that haven't been picked up by the rest of the retina. Does that make sense? Then the innermost layer of the retina is called the neural retina. This is the neural aspect of the retina, the neural layer, and this is what contains the rods and cones that pick up light. So that's called the neural it to layer. The brain. It's called the neural layer. The neural layer has around about nine layers associated with it, which we're not going to talk about. Oh, so the, n- the neural layer has all the r- remaining nine. That's right. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So it's made up of rods and cones and bipolar cells and ganglia and glia and all this other type of stuff. We don't need to get into that. So, just to finish off the inner portion of the eye, the retina, you've got directly, so almost directly behind where the lens would be, you have where the optic nerve comes into the eye. Oh, good point. Good point. So, right at the very back of the eye. So, if you were to take a... Um, a thelmoscope and look into somebody's eye. It's just a light and so a... So you, you might have had this if you went to an op- optometrist. Optometrist or an ophthalmologist, maybe. Have a look into the eye. What you're going to see is a couple of things. If you look directly right at the back of the eye, a bit off-center. So let's just say I'm looking into your left eye, right? Mm. Your left eye. I look in. What I'm going to find is that closest to the nose, I'm going to find the a little lighter round portion called the optic disc. So you see kind of two circles. Two circles. You're saying the one closest to the nose side. One closest to the nose side you're going to find is whitish and has a couple of blood vessels coming out of it. Right. Right. This is called the optic disc. Right. This is simply an area of, it's void of retinal cells. There's no rods, no cones there to pick up light. There's no pigmentation, hence it being white. And it just has nerves moving through it. Mm. This is the optic nerve coming through. And also... Or actually technically going out. Coming out, so optic tract maybe. Because it's going, it's a sensory, so it's going so, away. So it's an optic tract then, not an optic nerve. Um, and it will have blood vessels associated with it as well. And you'll see these blood vessels coming in and also coming out, but you'll see them coming in, right? Yep. To the side of that, so that's nasally, right? Laterally, inferior laterally. Still looking through the eye. Yeah. So this is the second disc that you see, the second round thing you'll see. Inferior inferior laterally to the optic disc, nearly right at the back of the eye. Yeah. but a bit off-center, but nearly right at the back of the eye is another disc which is yellowy, yellowish in color, and what's, what's but yellow- doesn't have any blood vessels associated with it. What's yellow in Latin? Uh, I think it's luteum. Very good. This is called the macula luteum. And we've probably all colloquially heard the term macula. Yes. As in like macular de- degeneration. Exactly. And this is potentially the area that's degenerating. Potentially. Mm. So... The macula luteum is a yellow area, and the macula luteum is an area of high-density cones, yep. filled with cones, high-density. 
This is where pretty much nearly all the cones are. Outside of this macula densus little disc area, or circle, is where all the rods are. The rods Can are just spread out. No, we haven't. Okay, I'm so just talking about their distribution, then we'll talk about what they do. For cones of a color, see for, see for color. Yeah. And R for black and white. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, cool. I like to think rods for rhodopsin, which is the pigment that it use, okay. uses, and cones use iodopsin. This is the pigment, and like you said, cones pick up color. So you've got that means that you've got this little circle at the back of the eye, nearly as as though if you were to shine, draw a straight line through the pupil to the back of the eye, to the back of the retina, it nearly hits this little area, yeah. and this is filled with cones to pick up light, dense. Pick up color, colored light, right? Then that's around that, covering the rest of the retina, is basically the rods. And that's where the, well, the lens focuses most of the light. Yes. Straight onto that macula. Which is important because this is, this macula is the area that picks up central vision. Yeah. So this is, notice how, if you look, I want you guys, everyone that's listening, look into one spot, straight ahead. That area that you're looking is going to be the most uh, detailed area of your vision. Don't move your eyes around, but sort of look into the periphery if you can. You can't see the details. You can't see any details at all. It's actually very poor. It doesn't. You don't have to move very far outside of that central uh, visual spot before things get very blurry. And I wonder if it's also they start to lose their color. Not sure. Because I know you. You, know, you I'm do. Look, I'm looking straight. I'm looking straight ahead right now at a white wall. Mm. To my periphery, I'm, there's a bookshelf. And I know that it should have colourful books in it. Well, the thing but is this. really, are they colourful? Well, the thing is this, that outside of the macula luteum, where there's all those cones for colour, there are some cones outside. Yeah. yeah. Immediately outside. But then the further you radiate out, the less cones there are, so the less colour you pick up and the more black and white you pick up. So you're right. It becomes less colourful the further out into the periphery you get and the less detailed the image becomes. Basically... Rods in the periphery, which pick up peripheral vision, right, is very light sensitive. So basically, dim light mm. is picked up by the rods and bright light is picked up by the cones. Okay. The way people like to explain it is that starlight is picked up by rods, moonlight is picked up by rods and cones, Depends on the moon, sunlight, right? maybe. Sunlight is picked up by cones. For the new moon, you wouldn't see much. Maybe. For full moon, differently. Wet, so wet, so, so this, does this mean why, if you're at, out at night, mm -hmm. you generally won't see colour? That's right. You won't see colour. The other thing you won't see are details. You'll be able to see shapes, figures, things moving. Yep. This is all because Stars. of the rods. Your cones aren't activated because there's not enough yep. light, but your rods are. And it takes what? 60, 90 minutes to fully saturate your rods? Yes, so in dim light. Yeah, in dim light. Yeah, so in dim light. Your rods take a lot longer than cones um, to pick up the light. Fully saturate. And fully saturate. What you'll find is that in the middle of the day, your rods are fully saturated, mm. right? Middle well, of if you're outside. If you're outside or in a well-lit room. Your rods are fully saturated, which is why if you've ever been outside working in the yard and then you move inside, everything's bright. You can't focus on things. You've saturated out your rods. Turn the lights off. Your rods don't work very well, right? Yeah. Let's just say you leave the lights on, then turn your, the lights off and it's pitch uh, a d very dark room. You literally can't see anything. 
for a while until you because your rods are still saturated. You've got to wait for the rods to stop being saturated from the previous light and then it can acclimatize to the current dim room and mm. then you can start seeing around. So the longer you are in a dark room, the better you your rods are at acclimatizing mm. to that right. dim light. And the reason why is this. Rods, you'll have numerous rods connected to one neuron one single neuron that goes to the brain this is like let's just say 10 rods connected to a single neuron this is like me having a conversation on the phone with 10 other people and they're all talking at once what happens is i can't make out what's going on can't make out the conversation the details are vague but i know that something's happening i can make out some words here and there but that's it so the details are gone just like with the rods when it comes to the cones you have this uh, visual acuity, you've got details, and that's because one cone is connected to one neuron going to the brain, just like me having a one-on-one conversation on the phone and know exactly what's going on. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. All right. So I think just finally, this is why if you go to, let's say, the st- like stargazers who go off and look in telescopes and so forth, they will put um, red cellophane over their torches because red light doesn't affect the saturation um, of the r- rods. So if you were to sh- shine um, white light... So if, they, if these people are out with a telescope looking at the night sky, seeing some really good stars, and you brought your torch out and shined in their eyes, everything for them would go dark again, and it would take them another 60 minutes to 90 minutes to saturate again to get a full, good night vision. But if wow. you put red cellophane over it, for some reason, um, the red light spectrum doesn't affect those so much. It's because rods pick up light at around about 500 nanometers, which is about the bluish light. Okay. And that's oh, it's, bet- it's between blue and green. I think it's al- also why you see, you know, in those movies and they're in a helicopter, the military, and they're about to land, they've only got a red light on. So they want to land with perfect night vision. Is that why? Yeah. Oh. That's cool. Interesting. And there's, there's so one, one final point to that, and I thought this was just because uh, I saw this in the um, Commonwealth Games because we just finished the Commonwealth Games. Um, sometimes you'll see people running with or performing activities. Probably shooters do this more. They'll have yellow glasses. Ah. Have you seen that? Yeah, I have. I just thought they'll been a bit different. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, this is called chromatic aberration. So not only does the light... Um, refract as it's going through the lens but also the the light wavelength refracts and so red will go further into the retina and the blue end will go further away from the retina okay so it will almost separate the light spectrum a bit and so you will see lights certain colors more sharply than others so if you go to um an optometrist, sometimes they'll get you to look in red and blue or red and green. Maybe yeah. red and green. Yeah. And ask you which one looks clearer. Red, green. Red, I think it's red and green. I could be wrong. Um, that's because there's an aberration there. Now, if you put the yellow yellow glasses on, it some t- somehow filters it and it gives you a more crystal clear um, vision of colours. Is that what it is? Yeah. There you go. And so, for instance, if you look at cats, now cats have a separate point, but let's, if you look at a cat eye, how does a cat eye look? It looks 
like there's a slit in it. Yeah, slit in it. So when it's in the high light environment, it's going to constrict its pupil, but it, instead of it going like a, s- a very small circle like us, it goes into a slit. Now the thought for why that is, is the um, the cat has a lens that has its multifocal, so it can um, from vertical from top to bottom it has different focal points so it can uh, instead of having this light scattering or this chromatic aberration it puts through that different focal points Mm -hmm. it puts it back on the retina all at a perfect point now so if it if it constricted the pupil into a small little round dot like us it would only put the light through the centered lens through the central little lens right yeah if you do it vertically it still it puts it still in a vertical plane through the whole lot of the vent, the ah. lens, and still can get that plane of light mo- in a multi-focal plane, okay. which will it's thought to align all the light spectrum for the animal. Wow, there you go. That's but interesting. There is an additional thing that the cat, particularly cats, do, uh, and this goes to the back of their eye. So, do you want to talk about that? So, if you shine light into the a cat's eye? Yeah. At night, particularly. What you do you see? You see the light shining back at you <laughs> through their eyes. Right. So, why is that? Uh, it's because they've got this reflective surface on the back of their eyes called the tapetum. And we don't, right? We've got, like we said, the retina has those two layers, the pigment layer, and this absorbs any excess light so that it doesn't reflect through the eyeball. But it seems as though cats do have a reflective membrane here and it reflects this light probably because they tend to hunt at night time and they want to be able to see best in the dark. So they want to maximize the amount of light in their actual eye. Mm. But when you shine a light in them, it's too much. You're saturating it through. And hence, like you said, if you probably look at a cat's pupil in the middle of the night, you'll find that it will be very wide. Yeah, huge. Very wide, yeah. huge. Um, so... That's basically what's happening. Is you got this reflection at the on this tapetum at the at the back of the eye. So just to clarify, there. So you, for us, you shine the light into the eye, and it hits, goes through the retinal layer. So it goes through the pupil, goes through the lens, goes through all this jelly-like um, substance until it hits the back of the retina. It goes through the neural layers until it hits the pigmented layer, which is essentially where the rods and cones are. And then, it, it then all the light that it can possibly pick up, it gets picked up then and there, and then it moves through that into the almost the choroid, where it's black, and then all that light is now absorbed. Yeah. Now that's for us, but for a cat, it almost has a mirror on that blackened area, so that light bounces back and reverses back towards the front of your eye again, and it gets a second go at the rod. Yeah, that's right. And so it kind of gets two goes at it to um, saturate the, the rod. Yeah. All right. How's that? I like that. That's good. Um, when it comes to the cones picking up color, they pick up color in three wavelengths, red, green, blue. Okay? So if you look at these three wavelengths, red, green, blue, what you're going to find is that the blue is around about 450 nanometers. That's the lowest wavelength. It's the lowest wavelength. That we can see. That we can see. You've got green, which is around about 550. um, And you've got red, which is around about 600. That's the highest energetic wavelength that we can pick up. Yes. 
that's, I think, one of the reasons why if you have a red car, the paint tends to disintegrate faster than that of a blue because it absorbs more energy. It's more energetic. Is that right? Or is it a blue? Is it the blue paint? Or have we got the whole thing back to front? Yeah, well, it's obviously one or the other. For some, <laughs> re- for some reason, I thought, but maybe it's red absorbs it and blue is more. Well, if it's in the red wavelength, it would be reflecting it. So it would be blue paint gets damaged more because it absorbs red light. The reason why a car's blue is because it's reflecting it, right? Yeah. So it must mean that it's absorbing red light. So blue paint tends to get damaged more. Does that make sense? It, theoretically, it's got nothing to do with what we're talking about. We're wrong, but it, that's a good thought. Um, so what red, 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 green, blue for the cones. Okay, so let's talk about color blindness very quickly. What do you think? Yeah, so um, my dad is color blind. Is he? Yeah. So he is red, green, color blind, or blue, color blind. Yeah, I think he just sees a lot of gray. <laughs> wow. Well, I don't know actually. I, Maybe yeah, he's depressed. <laughs> Because I ask him sometimes, like, traffic light, and he just said, looks the same, the colours. Whoa, really? Mm. So he, is he guessing, well, I suppose not guessing, because he knows from top, middle, and bottom which one's which, but, wow. I vaguely remember that this could be slightly different, wrong. Maybe he's lying over, to you. Over Christmas. Yeah. Um, he didn't know Santa wore a red coat. <laughs> Almost. We were walking to the beach, uh, my wife, my dad, and he goes, check out that... Um, Oh, that grey sign. And we're looking everywhere, can't see a grey sign. Mm. There. And we're like, it's red. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about this then. So, r- you've got red cones, green cones, blue cones. Blue cones make up around about 5% of all the cones. And red and green cones are about one-to-one. They create, they make up the rest of the <laughs> cones, okay? But they're, they're around about one-to-one. Sometimes this ratio is a little bit off. It's not a problem. The p- the genes that encode for the red pigment and the blue pigment are located next to each other on chromosome X. So that's red and green? Red and green, not blue. Red and green... On the X. The genes that lo- uh, encode for them are located on chromosome X. So that's a sex chromosome. That's a sex chromosome. If you're male, genetically, you are XY. If so you're female, your mum mother. and dad... And if you're female, you're XX. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, what that means is all males get the X chromosome from their mum. Yes. So think about that. All males, because the male has to get a Y chromosome from somewhere, and they're not getting that from the mum, have to get it from the dad. Okay. Yeah. So, what happens is when you, as a male, get your X chromosome from your mum, you don't just get it as is. You get the X chromosome and it shuffles around a bit. It's called recombination. Just like you get a deck of cards, you start to shuffle it around. Think of each of those cards as a gene. It gets shuffled around. Right. Sometimes those cards fall out and sometimes those cards double up. So that means you can have sometimes more red or more green or sometimes you have absence of red and green. Now, if you have the absence of red or green, you are going to be termed red-green colorblind. Hmm. Obviously, more common in males because you only have one X chromosome. If you're a female and this recombination has been dysfunctional and you've lost red or green genes, then luckily you have another X chromosome that can make up for that loss, hence why it's far more common in males. About 2% of the male population are red-green colorblind. 
Blue colour blindness is far more uncommon and is just as un- uncommon in males as it is in females because it's not on the X chromosome. It's on chromosome 7. Would that be a bigger impact on the person? Not sure. Not sure. Oh, I, I'm not... Yeah, don't know. So, does that make sense? Yeah. All right. So... Uh, so, obviously, it hasn't been bred out of us, so it's not a huge negative detrimental thing to have No, I don't think so. don't think so. Because you'd say that, I mean, for higher mammals, primates, prob- well, let's say primates, one of the biggest functions for our vision is foraging. Yeah. To... um. To determine, to distinguish colours in the bush, in the forest. Very true. And so when we look at the wavelength that we can see, the wavelength we can see is what we call visible light. Now, that's a bit biased because it's called visible light because it's visible light for us. (laughs) Yeah. Right? But if you look at the, the, the wavelength of light coming from the sun, the visible light spectrum is so minute. Okay? So what all the wavelength is... I should be talking about this because I'm not a physicist. But you can have long wavelengths and short wavelengths. Yeah, yeah. Okay? So think of it as the wave in an ocean. If it's a long wavelength, there's a lot of time between one wave and the next. And more energy in it, right? And there's, and, and there's more energy in it. They're bigger waves, right? But they come less frequent. Small, uh, uh, it's, sorry, they are less energetic, right? Yeah. And they... <laughs> I knew I got it ran away. That's right. I, th- I, th- I think I've got it wrong too. The longer wavelengths are smaller waves and come less frequently. The shorter wavelengths are larger wavelengths and come more frequently. So more energetic, coming more frequently. And when we say a wavelength is 500 nanometers, that's the distance from one wave to the next, from one peak to the next peak. Okay, it's not the height of it. It's not the height, it's yeah, the, the, the distance, distance from one to another. For example, so this is important. So microwaves. For example, we all use microwaves because it emits microwaves to small to heat our food. Yeah. And the way it does it is now microwaves sit outside of our visual um outside of our visible light on spectrum the, on the red end. On the red end, outside so after so red light is the highest light. Yeah. That we can see. That we can see. It then goes to infrared. Some animals can pick that up. Which some animals can pick up. Then, think, ju- uh, then outside of infrared, you've got microwaves. Reptiles pick that up. Because I think infrared is heat. Yes. Now, microwaves are a couple of millimeters. In okay? Between each other. Between wave and wave. This is important. Because have you ever looked at the front of a microwave door and you see the little holes in it? Yeah. Those holes are a particular distance apart. A couple of millimeters. They're narrow enough to stop the microwaves from leaving the door of the microwave right. and hitting you. So otherwise, if you didn't have that grill light pr- protector or come through the glass? Come through the glass and start to stimulate your hydrogen ions in your body and they'll start to shake and you start to heat up. Because <laughs> that's, that's what microwaves why, that's do. That's why children dance in front of the microwave. That's right, because all the hydrogen <laughs> ions are, are heating up and they're bouncing around. Um, that's cool. On the very far and then, end... And then you keep going and you got... Going to radio. Radio waves, which we'll be doing tonight. Going on the going on the radio waves. If you go on the other end, down where the blue light is, to the lower to alt to violet, which is purple, and then ultraviolet, which is outside of the visible wavelength, and then you go into so X rays. So that's the radiation that's 
damaging. Damaging to nucleus or... It's called ionizing radiation. Right. And that goes into X-rays and gamma rays and cosmic rays. This is the stuff that hurts you. Yep. Invasive. And I think it's... And I think the reason why is because they tend to interact more with things because the wavelength is more narrow. Right, so but if it's like a hundred nanometers, it means it can't get through anything, and so it interacts with everything it comes across. The radio waves, for example, which is like a kilometer from wave to wave, moves straight through you. Yeah, doesn't interact. I think yeah. I'm right in saying that, but yeah. I'm not a physicist. Well, I think AM. That's why, if you listen to AM radio, it cuts out a lot more because buildings get in the way of it, and FM is a shorter wavelength, so it can bounce around. So it can get between like. Say when you're in the car park, you can get in between the the, the levels. Yeah, Whereas so I don't know. If, I don't know if that supports the statement I made or goes yeah. against <laughs> gets the statement but I but made. But if you then look at all this radiation that's coming from the sun, yeah, conveniently we do have a atmosphere that absorbs those harmful ends. So I think I could be wrong. I think the ozone, so ozone, which is what O3, is that right? Yeah, that absorbs the the red end of the spectrum whereas the water vapor I think that absorbs the um, the blue sp- the ultraviolet more end okay. even though ultraviolet would come through yeah but that end is absorbed more by the the, the water vapor so in theory we're lucky that um, all that harmful radiation is kind of either bounced off or absorbed before it comes onto the planet yes and so we're not bombarded with all this harmful radiation mm-hmm. besides UV, I guess. Which other animals can also see UV? Yeah. I think there's actually even uh, some cases in which some humans have developed some cones that can see outside of red, green, blue. For example, I think there's uh, some lobsters that can see. Yeah. They've got all these different cones that can see uh, insane colours that we just can't even dream of. I think lobsters have a... Um, a what's it called? It's a separated eye, so a compound eye or something, and they all work off mirrors. So they, instead of a lens, they just have mirrors and mirrors and mirrors, and that focuses all the light into one area. Wow. Um, no, there's some amazing differences am- amongst the animal kingdom. It's crazy. All right, is there anything else? Well, look, I just wanted to say, because we've only spoken about the eye itself and haven't actually spoken about the visual pathway to the brain, which is probably a whole podcast in itself. It's uh, Well, if you want to go into that detail, it's very heavy. But maybe I'll say this. When you've stimulated the rods and cones, they've, they transduce this light signal into an electrical signal, and this electrical signal gets sent to the brain via neurons, right? Via the optic nerve. So it comes vi- through the oct optic nerves of the eye hits the optic chiasm which is where the two optic nerves come together now the left visual field of both eyes go to the right hand side of the brain just go temporal and nasal okay the temporal yeah good point vision visual fields in the temporal visual field I should say go to the opposite side of the brain left temporal field goes to the right Right temporal field goes to the left. Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of confusing. So if you l- think about the cup again. Yeah. And think about the back of the tennis ball for both of your eyes, and you cut it right down the middle. So you got. I got an easier way to explain it. Half and a lateral half. Yeah, I got an easier way to explain it. If you look at somebody's eyeballs right now, 
The very left of both eyes goes to the right-hand side of the brain. The very right of both eyes goes to the left-hand side of the brain. That's basically it. The visual field I'm referring to. I think the take-home point is the, b- the brain gets vision from both eyes. Yes, that's right. Once it gets to the back of the brain, okay, a couple of things. Where does this image go? Where does this um, action potential that's carrying the, uh, you know, uh, the encoded message for this vision or image, where does it go? It goes to pretty much three places or uh, one or two or all three. One place that it goes to is, first thing, is that it will go to a, a part right next to the thalamus called the lateral geniculate nuclei or lateral geniculate body. Mm-hmm. This part of the thalamus, next to the thalamus, lateral to the thalamus, would you say? Yeah, which is the relay station, basically. Which is the relay station for vision, and this then sends it to the occipital cortex, which is the visual cortex of the brain, right at the back. Yeah. All right. Another place that... And that's why they say you shouldn't punch people in the back of the head in boxing. I never would. Another place that this image can be sent through via these neurons is the midbrain. So it can be sent to the midbrain, and the midbrain will then send it, will take the information. It does a couple of things with it. Does it does a couple of things. One thing is that it takes this information and goes, oh, okay, uh, a lot of light's coming in at the moment. I need to maybe uh, respond by accommodating the lens and adjusting the pupil dilation. Mm. Okay? So it's a it's motor different. response back. Yeah. The third thing that can happen is that the signal gets sent to the hypothalamus which is the control center of the brain, specifically a little bit above called the suprachiasmic nucleus. Now, the suprachiasmic nucleus is part of the biological clock, our circadian rhythm. It tells us night, day, what's going on. This is attached to the very back of the hypothalamus called the epithalamus, which is our pineal gland. Mm. And our pineal gland creates a hormone called what? Melanin? Melatonin. Melatonin, melanin is yeah. is it makes you light or dark. Melatonin <laughs> allows you to respond to light or dark. Yeah, and right. so it basically is a neuroendocrine gland that allows for uh, that releases melatonin at night time, helps you sleep, promotes sleep wake cycles and so forth. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about the pineal gland? Well the pineal gland the third in, eye in lower so probably not mammals, going probably to reptiles, birds. Um, it's photosensitive, so it actually directly picks its own light up. So let's say for chickens, there's a um, back of the head of chicken, the pineal <laughs> gland. Back of the head of chicken? <laughs> back of the head of chicken? Back of the head of the chicken. Uh, it has a uh, very thin skull in that region, no feathers. Really? And so the light from the outside world can shine straight through the skull. Why do you know so much about chickens? I have chickens. Oh, that's right. So um, I said, is this true? You, so the skull of the of the chicken right at the back is very thin. Yeah. Uh, thin enough that light can shine through. Apparently. To the brain. Yeah. To specifically the pineal homologue. Yeah. The third eye. Wow. And what does it do? Well, exactly what it does for us. It generates its light-dark cycle. And so um, for big poultry farms they'll work off probably in eight hour ten hour light, light cycles wow. so they can get one and a half eggs per 24 hour period oh no way and so that because it, you know lights come on at the same time every day um, they are very fixed to time points and to lay in eggs 
Yeah. Because it's a. So is that what you do to them? No. Mine are all a natural ale. Alright. Um, there was something else I want to say, Ponil. Oh, just with um, the retina. So the both uh, both lateral eyes, which is the the eyes that we really get vision from, and the middle eye. Um, you mean the pineal gland? Or the parietal eye. For lizards and eye, for amphibians. Um, they develop uh, embryologically kind of in the same way. So, so retinal cells and pineal cells, you can actually see morphologically and functionally are similar and have similar evolutionary histories. They're both photoreceptive cells. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, and so there is a type of cancer that affects more ch- children which is called a retinoblastoma, which is essentially a cancer that develops from the retinal cells. And so what that can do is the tumour will start to form within the, the back of the eye and start to grow forward and forward and forward. And if you look through the eye, you might see the, um, the pupil looking white, and that's because you're seeing the, the cancer. Wow. And that, because it might be a congenital cancer, presumably, um, it could develop unilaterally, one eye, or bilaterally. You know, and it, you would probably assume if it's forming bilaterally mm. that it's going to develop in the third eye as well so you get a pineal tumour as well wow. so you'd want to scan do a MRI CT to see if there is a tumour in the epithalamus wow there you go but also with just the the light reflex that you spoke about um, because you get in from the back of the brain stem the midbrain that you s- said that um, generates the pupil reflex mm. um, because you get in to the back of the brainstem, you're getting light from both eyes, okay, it will have to send out a um, muscle response to the pupil on both eyes. So this is a very good ah. clinical test. So if I come to you, Michael, and shine with my pen light mm-hmm. into your pupil... Left pupil, for example? Left pupil. That light is going to go to the back of your eye, to your optic nerve. As it goes out the back of your eyeball, um, it splits the temporal part will stay on the same side, the nasal side will go across the other side, mm-hmm. goes to all those places that you mentioned, but it goes to the brain. Isn't the opposite? The temporal will go the opposite side and the nasal stays on the same side? Well, the temporal part of the retina will stay on the same side, but that picks up light from the nasal side. That's getting... Oh, gotcha, 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 gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So it goes back to the midbrain. The midbrain picks up the degree of light, but because it's intimate to each other, it will send out a motor response, and this motor response is called a nerve cord, which we have done. It's called the ocular motor nerve, mm-hmm. and it has parasympathetic nerves to it, which is rest and digest, yeah. and it's going to constrict the, the amount of light coming in. Okay, And so the response that I should see when I'm shining light into that left eye is both your eyes would constrict. Make sense? Yeah. And so this is very important because it's testing two nerves, mm. optic nerve from a sensory point, ocular motor from a motor point. Nice. And it's a very good neurological test because if you have had brain trauma, so you had a big head injury, or you suspect any kind of build-up pressure in the brain, it can be pushing on those nerves and they're not going to be working. But then you can work out, so if I shine light into your eye, the left, nothing happens. I don't know at this stage whether it's a sensory or motor problem. True. So then I go to the other eye, and if I shine light into that eye, and let's say um, both eyes constrict, then I know it's a sensory problem. Of course. Eye. Does that make sense? And makes this sense. And this is testing two at once. Makes sense. And so also saying that, because you said that the 
optic nerve is a continuation of diencephalon, which is... I never said that. <laughs> or brain. <laughs> or brain. Yeah. I think we said that outside of the podcast. Okay. <laughs> it's a, no, you said it's a continuation of brain, and you can see the yeah, brain... Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, I didn't say it was a continuation of diencephalon, okay. though. Um, which it is. It gives you a good un- understanding or ability to pick, pick up the pressure within the brain as well. So if there's an increase in cranial pressure, so there's extra fluid in there, it can cause edema of that disc. Mm. And then looking through someone's eye, you can see that as being pushed against, which is a sign that you've got intracranial pressure. And that's a, you know, that's a more simpler method of determining that. And that sort of leads into if you've got s- some ocular injury that can damage the optic nerve, including this type of pressure, that's glaucoma. Glaucoma is mm. damage to the optic nerve and subsequent vision. Yeah. And one of the through reasons... Ischemia. Through ischemia. So and one like of the reasons is increased pressure. Yeah. And this pressure can be not just due to increased intracranial pressure, but also an overproduction or lack of removal of the Look. jelly inside of the eyeball. Yeah, so looking at the, the, the eyeball again, so we go to... Um, as a tennis ball, um, let's say that the lens demarcates. How big do you reckon the um, the vitreous humor is? Like, if you're going to put it in as a scale, all that fl- jelly-like fluid at the back of the eye, would you say that's five sixths of the eye, three quarters of the eye? Yeah, four fifths. Okay, four fifths. So the back behind the lens, four fifths, all that jelly stuff, is what we call vitreous humor. Yeah, which is jelly. Jelly-like. Water and electrolytes and stuff like that. And as a child, it is like jello. Yeah. Okay? As we age, it can start to get fatty deposits in there. And you can start to get what we call floaters. And so sometimes people... I've got heaps of floaters. People report, if they look at, uh, I don't know, probably more of a dark wall or something, right? You might see things kind of floating across your Mm. vision. Like, I don't know how you describe them. Yeah, floaters. They're floating across your vision. That's essentially... um, Fatty deposits within that jelly-like layer. That jelly layer is really about giving you rigidity and um, pushing the retina against that choroid. It's, that's what its main job is, or one of them. Now, if you go forward, kind of in front of the lens, we have what we call the vitreous humor, which is the fluid. So this is behind the cornea, but in front of the lens. That's right, yep. Yeah. But because you have the iris there, it separates this vitreous humor into two further chambers, yep. an anterior chamber and a posterior chamber. Yep. Does that make sense okay? Yeah, yeah. Now, in that choroid body, which you said is the continuation of the choroid. Ciliary body. Sorry, the ciliary body, um, which is the continuation of the choroid. Yeah. And then finally... It's that triangular, it's that thickening of the, of the vascular supply. Mm. Nearly as you get to the... It's at the anterior portion of the eye, maybe about... Two-thirds towards the anterior portion of the eye. Yep. So, that ciliary body, it actually produces um, vitreous humor, which is just fluid and electrolytes. Is it vitreous humor or is it aqueous uh, humor? Aqueous humor, which is just fluid and electrolytes. Yes. Okay. And so, the pressure there in that space is about 12 to 20 millimeters of mercury. Okay. Okay. Of pressure. Yeah. Okay. Now, that is getting produced, this fluid is getting produced... But on the other side of the iris, kind of where the cornea and the iris meet, so that would be the corneal iral junction, there is a little hole, which is a canal called the canal schlem. 
Schlem. Okay. Yeah. And that Under the canal schlem. That absorbs the fluid. Yeah. So to keep that pressure at 12 to 20 millimeters of mercury, there has to be a perfect match between the, the aqueous humor that you make versus the aqueous humor that you reabsorb. So production and drainage. Yeah. Now, glaucoma can be generally made into two, or classified into two. I think they call it a narrow angle and an open angle mm -hmm. glaucoma. Narrow angle is essentially the angle between the cornea and the iris is narrowed and you can't get that absorption into it. Mm -hmm. So it's not reabsorbed, therefore the fluid builds up and you're more likely to get um, a really acute increase in pressure really quickly, particularly if you are dilating your eyeball, sorry, I shouldn't say eyeball, your uh, pupil, because as you dilate the pupil, the iris gets pulled further to the side, so it bunches up even more mm. and blocks that canal sclen even more. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that at least to me. And that would potentially cause a decrease in drainage and that could increase in a, a huge increase in acute um, glaucoma or pressure. And that, if you have an increased pressure in the eyeball, it can push against the wall and stop the nutrients that's coming from the choroid into the retina and you can get ischemia. And that's yeah. what you spoke about. You can get retinal damage. Yeah. Which is irre irreversible. That's right. What about cataracts? Right, cataracts. So then now we're looking at the lens. That's right. So if you look at the lens itself like a... Lens. Peanut butter M&M. Okay. Describe that to me. <laughs> Peanut butter M&M, where it's what? It's got a chocolate coating on the outside. Yeah. With Not quite. What's the most outer? So it goes... It's like a hard shell. Yeah, so it goes shell. Yeah. Chocolate. Yeah. Nut. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now, the nut is... So peanut M and M, not peanut butter M and M. Yeah, sorry. Very different things, yeah. man. I like peanut butter M and Ms. I like peanut <laughs> M and Ms. So the nut itself is the nucleus. Yeah. Okay. That's essentially where the cataract forms. So it becomes solidified and opaque. Mm. So I'm not sure what it's cloudy. Made. I'm not sure what it's made out of. No, I'm trying to find what the what the lens itself is. They just keep saying it's a crystalline structure. Which it's connective tissue, obviously, but and but what? And there's cells in there. There's yeah, there's cells in there that lose their organelles and remain transparent. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, we get that with with when it comes to keratinized tissue of our hands, mm. like uh, like uh, we lift too many weights and you get the Callus? calluses on your hands. Mm. They they're transparent. I guess so. But I, d I don't know what the I don't know what the yeah, actual sure lens is made of. But essentially, the the kernel, the nut, becomes thickened and opaque. Yeah. To the point where the whole lens can potentially just become completely white. I'm not sure what would happen. I, I assume it just becomes harder and harder to see. Mm. Is that right? Yeah. Well, age age is the most common cause. As you get older, your lens uh, becomes thicker. And loses its capacity and its elasticity. Which is called, what condition is that called? What is it called? When it loses elasticity or, lo or becomes... Yeah, loses elasticity, there's a term for that. Hmm. Presbytopia. Presbytopia. So, we've heard of Presbyterian. Yeah. Um, Presbyterian means elders in church. Okay. Presbo. Yeah. Is elders. Okay. Presbyopia. 
Opia. Opia means I. So oh. it the elders in the eye. Yeah. So but basically what it means is you got a bunch of old blokes in your eye. <laughs> <laughs> As you get old, you lose your elasticity of your eye. Yeah. So you can't see you can't bunch your eye up anymore. So yeah. you can't look focus very well. Closely. Yeah. So you get far sighted. Okay. So that's why most older people will need reading glasses. Gotcha. Anyway, back to the cataract. Yeah. It just becomes opaque. Mm. And so what they need to do from a surgical standpoint is put a little snick in the... <laughs> um, snick! <laughs> <laughs> not, not just a nick, but a no, snick. Snick, it's a specific um, ophthalmology term. <laughs> is, it, is it really? <laughs> so, obviously, well, actually, I don't mm. know exactly what is happening here. They would ref- reflect the eyelids away. I'm not pers- sure if the person's awake or not. Anyway. Yeah, it's uh, just done under a local. A local, okay. So the, the eyelids are moved apart to stop the corneal reflex. Mm-hmm. Um, the ophthalmologist, or I guess it's the ophthalmologist, will come in and put a very s- fine needle or something like that in through, uh, obviously it's going through the outer part of the eye, into the lens, the outer, um, what was the outer part of the M&M? The shell. The outer shell. Yeah. goes through that, just pierces that, puts a bit of lignocaine in there that numbs the lens because it's got cells in there it's probably somewhat painful and then they would put another nick not snick nick <laughs> um, which allows bigger instruments to go in mm-hmm. then they bring that in and kind of tear the chocolate layer off the um, peanut layer mm-hmm. and then they get this device that just breaks the nut in half yeah ultrasound waves or they can always scrape uh, maybe the new ones are ultrasound so they it breaks this nut into pieces and then with a vacuum cleaner they just suck out all the kernel wow until there's nothing left now before they can do that they've got to put a fluid back in otherwise the whole thing will collapse on itself yeah and so they fill it back up and then they just with saline yeah well I think there's some other stuff but anyway they then put the fake lens in which is like a flower and just opens like they fold it. They take yeah. they take this plastic lens. They fold it maybe four or so times with the forceps. Place it in. Then when they let go, it just folds open. Yeah, it's like and a, just a flower. Sits perfectly. You know when you put in your cup of tea, that flower that opens up in your tea. Don't drink tea. <laughs> it's like that. Just opens up. Yeah. Fills the space. Yeah. And then they put a special little glue that just water seals the two holes they put in. Bob's your uncle. Bo- and Bob's, yeah. Bob's your father's brother. Yeah. Perfect. And that's. Cataract surgery. And they've been doing that for a probably long time. 800 years. It's an, eight pa- pa- <laughs> an outpatient operation. <laughs> it takes like 45 minutes. But it's m- 800 years they've been doing that. Really? It's not more, yeah. Wow. So I wouldn't have wanted to be the first. <laughs> so that's cataract. Is there anything else oh. from a um, dysfunctional point of view? No. Oh, macular degeneration. Oh, yeah. Macular degeneration is in the macula. So that's the macular lateal which is that yellow part, and that's got a little focused area which has got all the cones in it. Um, basically, what either through um, genetic or in probably a combination of genetic and environmental, um, it can form two types of macular degeneration. It can be a dry or wet. Um, one can be, if it's wet, basically what happens is, for some reason there is a heightened increase of neovascular vascularity, a whole lot of blood vessels have gone to the back which become leaky and then start to cause damage to that part of the eye. 
whereas the dry... So remember the macula is where we have huge dense cones, cones yeah. yeah. Whereas the dry one is specific deposits go into that area and then it will cause a dysfunction and the retinal cells will die. And But because it's happening centrally, um, the vision for that those people that would have this, they would lose... Um, center central vision. vision, yeah, and they would. So, if I was looking at your face now, your face would start to become grey and disappear. Yeah, but I would see everything around you. So that's macular degeneration. Probably the last one is that I've the main ones I've heard is um, retinal detachment. Oh yes. Did you want to talk about that? Well, basically, retinal detachment can happen anytime, anywhere. To anyone really, as far as I'm aware, and that those two layers of the retina that I spoke about, the pigmented layer that absorbs excess light, and the layer that has the rods and cones, they peel away from each other. So the layer that has the rods and cones peels off from the pigmented layer, which stays adherent to the choroid. Right. And, pi- and because we said the choroid is very important for what? Choroid is very important for delivering nutrients. Right. Which yes. is the majority of the oxygen and all that to the retina that's uh, yes from that. that's right so if it starts peeling off and that all that vitreous humor gets underneath it mm-hmm. what would happen well one it's not getting fed at least not properly so the cells start to die off and two the vision is going to get very poor because now you don't have a nice f- adherent surface of the retina yeah. for the light to be able to hit uh, once the vitreous humor has got behind it it's distorted the image yeah as well, so and I think the, the the main danger to that is the retinal cells, which are very very energy hungry, they will die, mm. and that's probably why, if you can remember back, when you get lightheaded, mm. um, so you know the times where you stand up really quickly, yeah, um, and you get those bright lights, your vision goes first, mm. so your vision will start to. You know why though. Because your because your retina is very oxygen hungry. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, so sorry. Once you, that's the first part of your brain to start shutting down. Yeah, very oxygen hungry because there's so many. I don't know if I said it, but there's I, th- I think there's a hundred million rods yeah. and five million cones. Right. So there's a lot of cells there. That's per retina. Yeah, and so then you compare our eye to the octopus. Mm. Octopus is an invertebrate. But for some reason, it's got an eye almost as complex as ours. But its main difference is its r- its photosensitive cells is right at the top. Okay. Well, I wouldn't say at the top. I'd say its photosensitive cells are in are in. V- so we what we didn't say was this: when the light comes in f- into the eye again through a hole in a tennis ball, right, and the retinal cells are lying in the back. There are. 10 layers yeah. that the light needs to move through f- to the re- until or nine layers until it hits the rotten cones yeah. right that light gets refracted and reflected and all that type of stuff and that at the very back not a great deal though we don't lose a great deal but then what happens is once the rotten cones pick up that s- that light signal it needs to send it back through those yeah. nine layers to where cuz those nine layers are the nerve layers all the different synapses which then again move back again to go through a hole in the back of the eye called the optic disc. In the octopus, it's inverted, which means that the light, when it comes into the eyeball, hits the rotting cones immediately, 
and then send the signal immediately back through the eye, yeah. which means that the hole at the back of the eye that we have, the optic disc, it's, it's there's still a hole in the back of the eye of the octopus, but it doesn't affect vision. You've got the entire back of the eye for the octopus have rods and cones, but we don't. We've got a hole for where the optic yeah. um, disc is present. Yes. Yeah, so for some reason, I'm not sure exactly why, we've needed a greater blood supply than the octopus does for its photosensitive cells. Do we? Yeah. Or maybe it gets fed from not the choroid, but gets fed from uh, other retinal... Yeah, probably the, the same way as the nerve's been fed, but I'm just I'm saying that because ours have got our um, pigmented layer or our photosensitive layer is right near the choroid, yeah, it must be because it's more energy hungry and mm. needs a, a greater rich. Yeah, maybe supply. maybe oct- oct- octopodia. It's not octopi. Octopodia. Octopuses. Yeah, it could be octopuses. Maybe they don't, they don't have as many rods and cones as we do. But they have a better ability to pick up um, flicker speed. Really? So you know when you like look at a car's wheel and it seems to stop? Mm-hmm. I think it's our flicker speed is... So to go from a still frames into a movie, mm. I think ours is like 20 or something to get frames per minute to make it into a... Or frames per second, should I say to make it look like a movie. I think octopi, they're about 80. It's not octopi. Octopuses. <laughs> they're 80. That's better. They're better in that wow. case anyway. All right. All right. What yep. do you think? Done? Yeah, I think we're pretty good. Anything final? Any final points? No. It's a lot with the eye. We go on forever. It's an interesting organ, isn't it? That's for sure. All right, well... No more... I don't want to hear any jokes cornier than the last. No. I've <laughs> but I will say, when I was um, in high school, I was a pretty good pupil. Oh, God. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.